70 years ago, uh, God moved so powerfully among the people of Lewis uh, that people are still talking about it today and uh, books have been written about it. Unbelievers came to faith in their hundreds and believers became very, very convicted of their worldliness and the community was changed. Now much is made of the preaching of the minister and evangelist Duncan Campbell, although he downplays that. But there's no doubt that the quiet background intercession of two housebound women in their 80s was instrumental in that awakening. Peggy and Christine Smith at 82 and 84 years of age, they were deeply troubled by two things, the state of their society and the state of their church. And they sensed God's divine displeasure, in their own words, with those things, and it weighed very, very heavily on them. So, what did they do? They prayed. They interceded on behalf of God's people and passionately and persistently asked God to intervene. Now, it wasn't a, a once-off thing. This was a daily prayer. This wasn't an hour-long, tepid, list-ridden thing. This was passionate, knee-hurting, persistent pleading with God, sometimes lasting into the early hours of the morning. And they did what any good prayer would do. They took God's word and turned it back to him in a prayer. And interestingly, two passages from Isaiah became, if you like, uh, theme verses for them. Isaiah 44, I will pour out water on thirsty land and streams on dry ground. And Isaiah 64, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Well, guess what? In an amazing way, God did answer their prayers. First, they called the elders of the church to come round to the house, and the Smith sisters explained their concern, insisted that the elders join them in their, inter in their intercession. The house was too small for the elders to do that there, so they prayed in a barn somewhere. And they came under conviction of sin. How can we pray for people to be transformed when we ourselves are not changing, was their realization and they stayed on their knees. Then they sent for a preacher to hold some meetings. This is how preacher and evangelist uh, Duncan Campbell came. Now here's, the story is remarkable. Here's what happened that first night he arrived off the boat. I mean, he'd barely set foot on the island when the elders met him. He was looking forward to supper and a good night's sleep, but the elders said, the people are waiting. There was a nine o'clock service, p.m., now, not much happened in the meeting, Campbell said. He preached. People prayed passionately, of course. But just as he got up to leave the meeting, the local blacksmith burst through the doors and said, Mr. Campbell, something wonderful has happened. Oh, we've been praying that God would pour himself out like water on dry ground. And listen, he's done it. He's done it. Campbell tells how he went to the doors and looked out and 600 people were standing outside the church at 11 o'clock at night. People had left their houses and local dance halls and pubs and just come, compelled to come. He stood in silence looking out and one young woman broke the silence. Sir, is there mercy for me? She asked. Now many came to faith that night and over the coming months, people call it revival. It is of course a move of God, a work of his spirit, 
but there is no doubt that he has employed again human agents in his work as intercessors, prayers, people who feel deeply about the things that God feels deeply about and people who boldly ask for God to intervene. Well, that's exactly what we find Isaiah doing in chapters 63 and 64. Who knows, maybe his example, maybe this prayer was inspiration for the Smith sisters. You see, he too was deeply troubled by all that God had revealed to him about the state of God's people. Exile is coming down the track. God's discipline is on the nation. But hope is yet extended. There is a future. All is not lost. God is still faithful. God is still able to do something about it. And Isaiah has had these phenomenal, we've seen them, these phenomenal pictures of what is to come both in the Messiah, Jesus, and further ahead into the new heaven and new earth. But Isaiah, so passionately gripped by an awareness of the need of his people and the ability and the power of God, it's as if he just cries out, why not now? Why not now? Well, let's read this passage together. Uh, Before we do, let's pray. Father, our prayer is that as we study your word, we would sit under it. Recognize your authority. Be open to the move of your spirit and be changed by it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah 63, reading from verse 7 through to the end of 64. I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised. According to all the Lord has done for us, yes, the many good things he's done for Israel, according to his compassion and his many kindnesses, he said, surely they are my people, children who will be true to me. And so he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old, yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people, where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them? who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown, who led them through the depths. Like a horse in open country, they did not stumble. Like cattle that go down to the plain, they were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord. This is how you guided your people, to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your might, your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us? But you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, you, Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. Why, Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance, For a little while your people possessed your holy place, but now 
Our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. We are yours from of old, but you've not ruled over them. They have not been called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down and make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you've hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet... You, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look upon us, we pray, for we are your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our ancestors praise you has been burned with fire and all that we treasure lies in ruins. After this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? Amen. This is God's word. Well, there's a lot here, but I'd like us to take it in two chunks. Um... Remember and request are our two main points this morning. Uh, First of all, remember from verses 7 to 14. Remember is what Isaiah says, first of all. Uh, God has poured out his grace on us before. As you look with me at verse 7, Isaiah is reflecting here not just on the state of everything around about him, but on the nature of God himself. And in verse 1, he can't help but kind of spew out all these things about the great deeds that God has done, his many, many kindnesses, plural. And uh, two things about him in particular, not just his deeds, but his heart. I will tell of the kindnesses, the deeds, all the Lord has done, the many good things he has done. And what does Isaiah, even in that first verse, verse 7, attribute all God's activity to? Their deservedness, of course not, to God's grace, to his unshakable covenant love and his deeply felt compassion. Now, Isaiah could have recalled any number of the hundreds of examples of this, but in verses 8 to 14, he zeroes in on one, the Exodus, because the Exodus is the biggie when it comes to what God has done and how God has shown his love in every Jew's eyes. The Exodus is proof beyond doubt that God loves and acts on behalf of his people, even when they're in the mire. So God proved his love for them, first of all, in becoming their savior. 
a man alive today needs saving. I mean, when you read the start of the book of Exodus, it starts with wailing, mournful mums and emaciated men. Sons are being thrown into the Nile. Men are working till they literally drop dead. Pharaoh looks on this vast crowd, up to a million, they say, of people, slaves, and he says, my people in pride. But look at verse 8. God says, no, 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 no. My people. My children. So the first thing that Isaiah recalls as he prepares to plead on behalf of the people for God to intervene is the very fatherhood of God. Dads are meant to love their kids. Many dads fail their kids. Mine did. But not this one. Not this father. He cares deeply for his children. Look at verse 9. In their distress, he too was distressed. And the Hebrew actually said that he was moved in his bowels. That has very different connotations for us today. But basically it means he was so deeply moved in his gut, it was like an ache. That's how deeply God feels for his people. Not distant, not uncaring, but near and deeply feeling. That's who the God of the Bible is. So what did he do? He rescued these people. And for him, it was as easy as a dad walking along, scooping his son out of danger and carrying him home. Simple. Verse 9, he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. So he proved his love for them by his activity in redeeming and saving them. But also he proved his fatherly love for them by disciplining them. That's what you see in verse 10. Disobedience is dangerous to kids, right? I mean, if one of my kids is racing towards a busy road, obedience is very, very important, isn't it? And disobedience is an absolute, it's an absolute necessity to stop him from killing himself. Disobedience is that bad. So a discipline is necessary. And a dad proves his love by disciplining. We read about that. My son, Proverbs 3, quoted in Hebrews 12, of course, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Well, verse 10 says that his children have rebelled against him and grieved his Holy Spirit, but God still proved his love. He didn't say, do you know what? You do what you want. He did what was hard but necessary to show them the nature of his holiness and at the same time his loving commitment to them as a people. And it had the desired effect. This discipline, this discipline brought them to their senses. Look at verse 11. What do the people start to do? They say, ah, we start to look back. His people recalled the days of old and suddenly realized they had wandered from God, the great shepherd of his people. They weren't following the leaders he had appointed. And they started to miss his presence among them. They'd not been seeing him work powerfully as he had done in the past. And it's almost like they came to this realization. Do you know, we have not been enjoying the kind of rest that our people enjoyed when they were given it by the Holy Spirit. Typified by these illustrations here of a horse in open country, free to roam, no obstacle in its path. And in a sense, these people, as Isaiah recounts their experience, are like the prodigal in Luke 15, coming to his senses in the muck and the mire of the pigsty and all of a sudden remembering who his father's like 
and the blessing his father pours out on his servants back home and then he thinks what am I doing here what am I doing here why have I wandered away like this and like the father with his prodigal son God was watching God restored these people Israel my firstborn son he calls them in Exodus 3 he restored them to sonship that's how kind God is One of the first things he did when he brought them out of the Exodus was declare himself on the mountain of Sinai, preaching to them himself, this is who I am. I am your redeemer. I brought you up out of Egypt. What did he do a few chapters later? I've got a good idea, someone says. Let's uh, let's melt all our jewelry and we'll we'll make a, a golden cow and we'll bow down to it and say, our rescuer and our redeemer. What a stench to God. What an offense to him. In love, having redeemed them, in love, he disciplined them and welcomed them back. This is the kind of grace that gains him the everlasting renown that we see in this passage. So Isaiah looks back to the Exodus for proof of God's kindness and power to act, but there's a clearer expression of God's fatherly love that we can look to, of course. It's Jesus. It's Jesus the sending of God's one and only Son. The cross, you see, is this ultimate display of God's fatherly love and kindness. We can look back to the Exodus, but we've got the new and better Exodus to look to in Jesus Christ himself. I mean, we can look to the cross of Christ and be in no doubt of the depth of his, the Lord's, fatherly feeling towards us. We can be under no illusion of the extent of his grace towards us. When we think of the ways that we have sinned, the ways that we have rebelled, the stench that we are to his nostrils, we're just like the Israelites before the golden calf. And yet in his fatherly love, he comes down. Romans 5 says, while we're still powerless, Christ came, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. Why? It is to his Father's glory to love us so much that he would forgive us our sins and rescue us. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. How loving. How gracious. I will tell of his many kindnesses. I only have to look back on one of the 19 years of my life. I could pick any one before I knew Jesus and say, I did not deserve this. Never mind all 19. What about you? Can you tell of the many kindnesses of God in displaying his love, even in his continual discipline of us as Christians, to keep us close to himself? 
He died for us. He feels deeply for us. And if it takes discipline for us to see that, that discipline will be a kindness to us if we return to him. Tons of people did on Lewis back then. Tons of people need to do that today. Isaiah looked around and saw the absolute need around him. Look at the state we're in. I wonder if we do the same. And I wonder if it moves us the way it ought to move us. Society, church. You know, how's it going in society? How are we doing with that sexual revolution of the 1960s? How's that working out for us? I think thousands of aborted children say it's not. What about the church? I think clergy who take that step away from the authority and the sufficiency of God and prefer a better reputation with politicians and culture as a whole to standing firm on the word of God shows that it's not going well for us. What about us as a church family? If I say, look at the state we're in, what comes to mind? You might think, Liam, we're doing pretty well. We are. What do you mean, look at the state of our church? It's so small. It's so small. I can't go over it. I'm deeply troubled by it. It's just not enough people here. We think we're big at times. Comparatively so, fine, I get that. But we're unaware of our own mediocrity and minuteness when there are so, so many more people out there. You know, you could take all of the Bible-believing gospel-hearted Christians in Edinburgh right now, in this city of 475,000. You take all those believers and you couldn't even fill an end of Murrayfield. We're We're too small. What do we need? We need God to move, right? We need God to move in power again. We need to do what Isaiah has just done and look at God's word and see the amazing things that he has done in the past. All these evidences of his fatherly love and kindness. We need to look forward to the future of the new heaven and new earth and the return of Christ and what that's gonna look like for us. And we need to say, why not now? Do it again, Lord. And that's the request that Isaiah makes. This is point two, request, plead with him to do it again from verses 15 through to the end of 64. Isaiah asks God really to sum this up, to to do three things in this prayer. Look down, come down and act. Verse 15, first of all, look down. Look at the state of us. He's rehearsing this again. Where are your zeal and might, he cries. Now, 
Don't misunderstand this. Isaiah's not angry with God. He's not blaming God or shaking his fist at him. He's just acknowledging before God the condition that they're in. And he knows, because God has already made it crystal clear to him in all of the things he's revealed to him, that God's discipline is on them again because they've rebelled again. That's why the exile's coming. It is coming, and it will happen. Isaiah himself admits that in verse 17. And then he asks, why do you, why, Lord, do you make us wander from our ways and harden our hearts so we don't revere you? Well, it is God's loving discipline again. God cannot be indicted when he has, as he will say at the start of Isaiah 65 in response to this prayer, all day long I've held out my hands. All day long I've held out my hands. So what should we do? Let's start by bringing to mind in our prayers and before God the fact that we are in a society, a people, and ask God that's, that's rebelling and ask God to show fatherly kindness as he's done before to reveal himself to those who don't know him and act on behalf of those who do. And what is the very thing that Isaiah calls on to stir God's heart to move? You are our father. Fatherhood again. You are our father. Everything's changed about us. We're not walking in your ways. We're not acting like we're your children. We're rebellious. We're acting more like those who don't know you and who haven't had their name apportioned to them. But he's saying nothing's changed about who you are. You are our redeemer. That's not changed. That's why in verse 17 he makes the request, return for the sake of your servant. There's an immediacy to this. So he says, look down, see what I'm seeing. And God does. He sees everything. The eyes of the Lord range to and fro throughout the earth. There's nothing he doesn't see. The second thing Isaiah asks him to do is to come down. This is verse 1 of chapter 64. Listen to the longing in this. There's an oh at the start of this. It's an indication of the heartfeltness of this prayer from the very beginning. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down. Like you did in Sinai, when the mountain trembled at your presence, you preached to the people. Oh, that you would come down in noticeable ways, tangible ways to us. Even to people who've heard of you or haven't as noticeably as fire on twigs and heat on water, has an effect, have an effect on us. Oh, that you would come down, verse three, and do the unexpected things. God has always been in the business of doing the unexpected things. Can you imagine what the Israelites thought in the moments before Moses raised his staff and the Red Sea parted? How on earth are we gonna get out of this one? Do you think that when Moses lifted his staff and the water opened up and dry ground path was opened up for before them, somebody said, I knew he was going to do that. The Lord moves in unexpected ways. Did we really think that God would 
in his, the pinnacle of redemption, as the eternal son of heaven left the father's, left the throne and came down into this world that he would come as a baby into poverty. Do you think one of the shepherds who went to see him that first time was like, I knew he was going to do that. No. Come down and do the unexpected things. Like working through two 82, an 82 and an 84-year-old ladies on Lewis. Don't hold yourself back, is Isaiah's prayer. Tear open the heavens violently if you have to. That's what rending means. It's not just a part it back like you pull back the curtains. It's rip it. Come down. You hear the passion in that? You can tell Isaiah feels deeply about the plight of his people, the state of the earth, and his conviction that there is only one person who can do a single thing about it, and it is the Lord of heaven and the earth. Look down, come down, act on our behalf. In verses four and five, Isaiah just underlines the fact there's no one like God who can do this, who can act on behalf of people. That's what he does. He's the one who fights the fights and wins the battles. He's the one who does the redeeming and rescuing work. He's the one who gives the instructions. And he comes to the help of those who do right and remember his ways. Well, that's right. We see this in the New Testament. The prayer of the righteous man is powerful and effective, says James. So we get that. But in verses 6 and 7, Isaiah very, very honestly acknowledges, humbly accepting, that's not what we are. We are not righteous people. We are not righteous people. I always think of Isaiah's 64, I think, verses 6 and 7. These are, this is Isaiah's gulp. This, this is him thinking, oh, how can we be saved? Look at the nick of us. And we understand what he says here when he says all of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel or fade like a leaf and our sins like the wind sweep us away. So even the good things that we do are stained with sin. The good effort we put in doesn't last and our sins like the wind take control of us and move us in directions we're never meant to go we are wanderers verse 7 no one prays says Isaiah no one calls on your name or no one has any kind of inkling to strive to lay hold of you to pray open up your word And then he says, you've hidden your face from us and given us over to our sins. So again, there's the recognition of the discipline and the, the vindication of God as he acts in this way. Everything seems hopeless except for one vital fact. Verse 8. What does he remember? 
Look at it. See it for yourself. Yet you, Lord, are our, say the word, Father. Again, you are our Father. The one whose nature and character and love never changes is always consistent. That's the reason why Isaiah, knowing the state of society, the state of God's people, can pray a prayer like this. Move, Lord, because you're a loving father. You see him appeal to the nature and the character of God. We know, I know you know you. I know who you are. I know what you're like. I know this moves you. Move, Lord, please. And in that, there is hope. Hope for us all. Hope for all the people that we love dearly who are not in Christ. Hope for change in our city in our church, in our kids, in us. This is where our hope for real awakening lies, not in us, but in him, in his love, in his ability to rework us. As he highlights here, you're our father, we're the clay, you're the potter, we're all the work of your hand. In other words, like potter with clay, taking wilting forms like us and reshaping them for his glory, making us into the people we were made to be is something that God can do expertly because he's a potter. He's the one who made us. He's the one who reshapes us. The incredible thing to point out, of course, is that Isaiah's prayer was answered. Fast forward 750 years and we see God came down. He came down personally. Jesus, the eternal son of the father, became a man. We sing about it at Christmas time. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Wow. What rich words. Promise me you'll belt that out at Christmas time. That's incredible. He came personally. He didn't just send another messenger. He stepped in to the story. The author wrote himself in to the story. He came to be the savior. He died for our sins. He rose again with the promise, the victory has been won. The victory has been won. You can have new life in me. And what does he say to Thomas? What does he say to Mary? He says that when he's going, because he's not sticking around, he's going back to heaven to take that rightful place of glory and honor, the highest place, the name above all names. I'm returning to my gods and your gods, my father and your father. 
through Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, we are adopted into God's family so that if we know him, we are his sons and daughters. He's our father. And that's exactly how Jesus wants us to relate to him. Do you know God like that at all? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, has anyone explained any of this to you before? Of who Jesus is, what he did, and how the cross is that perfect display of God's love for you and how he has acted on your behalf. The very thing that Isaiah was praying for. He looked, he saw, he came down, he acted on your behalf. And what he gives to you is a free gift of salvation, forgiveness of sins, new life in his name. You can own that today for yourself. Become a child of God today for yourself simply by saying, sorry, thank you, please. Father, I'm sorry for my sins, for all the ways I've rebelled against you. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross. Please come into my life. Help me to live for you all my days as I look forward to the glory to come. Sorry, thank you, please. It's as simple as being polite. Talk to me after the service. I'd love to chat with you. I'm going to be down the front here. I've got a Bible. I'd love to give you this as a gift. Uh, you can take it away from you. I'm going to put a wee post-it note in there to give you a place to start reading so you can know more about this Jesus who is our Savior. Or speak to the person who brought you. You can go to the Connect Corner as well. Folks, I'd be delighted to chat to you. And for us, of course, brothers and sisters, as those who survey our society, with the full knowledge of who God is. We see the desperate need, we see the rebellion, we see the decline, we see all these different things. Are we moved to pray in this way? If not, if your prayer life sucks as much as mine does, then it may just be the case that we need to reflect a little bit more on the fatherhood of God. I can't get away from that. That's what Isaiah is getting us to do. his fatherly love and his power to give gifts and to act. So we can remember, listen, God has poured out his grace before. So we can request, make requests before him, plead with him to do it again. And what better way to do that as we close with the Lord's prayer itself? I can't get over the fact. Now that I, I'm rereading the Lord's prayer with new insight, I think, having read this prayer here. Because Jesus wants us to reflect on the fatherhood of God. The first thing he wants to flood your mind with, even when you think, oh, I don't know if God's going to accept me. I don't know if he's going to listen to me in my prayers because, you know, I'm such a sinner. We sometimes think that we need to clean ourselves up before we come into his presence. But what is the first thing Jesus wants you to remember when you address God in prayer? You are adopted. You are a child of God. And all the things that come with that, you are, can be summed up with this, you are loved. So come and pray. Let's pray it together.